Namaste. So we have gathered for a very special event. As we know, 150th birth anniversary of Shurabindo. And the best way to celebrate is to stay quiet and receptive in his presence, to invoke his presence through Savitri, through his writings, through an inner aspiration, through a call, through surrender, through devotion and faith. And of course, when we think about him, when we read about him, when we speak about him, when we reflect and meditate upon his life, these are the ways by which we can open to the special help that comes on these occasions. So, for these three days, what came to me very naturally and spontaneously is that um, we can look at human life. Uh, we have reached here through thousands of years of aspiration, if not hundreds of lives, this point. And as a human being, we can, be, we can say that there are three types of human beings who aspire or who are who have reached a certain point of development. And I am not speaking here of the majority whose life is centered around eating, drinking, be merry, have progeny and that's all. But but an awakened humanity. So there are three layers of this kind of awakened humanity who do different kinds of work for God in the world. One is that they preserve the past or bring out all that is beautiful in it so that it can be integrated with the future. And we see a whole lot of humanity in the last thousand years or maybe two thousand years where there was a tendency to preserve the past, to bring out the past. All of India's history has been like that. The Vedas were given by the Rishis and the, then the Upanishads, then the Gita. But there is a whole section of humanity whose task is to faithfully preserve the text and from time to time bring out its real meaning. Because if we just preserve it faithfully, then again the meaning is left to each one's uh, interpretation, which anyways is one of the things that human beings engage into. But at the same time, it's important to keep reintegrating this past with the present circumstances. So this is one kind of work where the past is brought out and made contextual and relevant to these circumstances. And, uh, you know, uh, religions which fail to do it, which remain stuck and glued to the past, just as it was, they uh, stop advancing. And whatever stops advancing over a period of time decays and dies. And this, I believe, is one of the strengths of Sanatan Dharma, that it has always allowed a relook at the past, a and thereby reinvent itself. It integrates itself with the present. And that's what we see over a period of time. There are different ways people have looked at the Vedas, the Upanishads, the Gita, and had their own experiences according to the age in which they lived. And that's something very beautiful. The original writings are there. Anyone can always go back to it. But at the same time, there is a way to re-look and reinvent ourselves in the light of a past knowledge. This one kind of humanity and which is engaged in it uh, to link up the past with the evolutionary momentum of the present. The second kind of action, second kind of works, which is in which mainly those who can be called as the vibhutis they engage in, and that is they bring change in the present. So they assure changes of various kinds, social reform, political changes, intellectual 
revolutions, scientific advancements and so on and so forth. And these are also necessary because as we know in Indian thought, dharma is not just something static. It has that aspect also, that uh, stable basis of all things. But dharma is also evolving, the evolving field of evolving dharma. And that is something very beautiful about Sanatana dharma. That is not stuck to a rule book of uh, black and white. It recognizes shades of grey through which humanity moves. And as it moves, even in one lifetime, and depending upon uh, different types of humanity, different situations, contexts, there is an evolving dharma. In other words, all that helps us to grow towards a better future. So there is a whole layer of humanity that brings in changes, asher changes, which make us grow towards the future. Of course, not all changes towards the future. There are changes which can be retrogressive. There are changes which uh, undermine the future. They become fashions. So we are, but here we are focusing on that layer of humanity which has an evolutionary impetus, which embody the evolutionary energy and usher in changes. And we see that also, especially in the last 400-500 years from the intellectual interpretation of the Vedas by Swami Dayanand, then we have Raja Ramohan Roy, Brahma Samaj and Keshav Chandra Sen and many others who started Sri Ramakrishna Paramahansa and of course, uh, Swami Vivekananda and many others who actually they took up the past and gave it a new evolutionary impetus and evolutionary possibility. Particularly we see in the life of Sri Ramakrishna, this opening of a door towards a greater synthesis of the different religions through which humanity has moved up till this point. And then of course there is a third type of humanity. At least it wears a human form but uh, as Shubhinda says in Savitri, um, it's a translucent mask which covers the all-wise that guides the world. They represent not just some change, but they represent a radical leap of human consciousness from whatever it is to a far distant future. They build a bridge and they set humanity moving along those pathways uh, in the trails they have gone and then over a period of time, maybe few centuries humanity starts arriving somewhere near that. Beautifully summarized in Savitri, this was a seed sown in endless time. A light is shown, a word is spoken and a light is shown. These ages toil to express. So, you know, the ages toil to express. So, we see this kind of humanity is the avatar where uh, there is the divine himself. He steps into the forefront of the human quest and leads the human march, Lok Sangrahart, through a narrow gorge, through a door of crisis towards a greater and greater becoming. So in Shurvindu's life, we see very beautifully all these three simultaneously together. And these three days, maybe we can take up each aspect and uh, on the grand culminating 15th August, we speak about Shurvindu the Avatar. But today, just how Shurabindu has worked upon the past, all these three strands of action, or we can say Shurabindu's karmadhara, we can see. One is where he brings out the past, but all the beauty and glory of the past, the past which is lying buried in a mass of um, uh, a body of words, of course, and a mass of uh, understanding, misunderstanding, dust of centuries, and he brings it out, and he gives it a new meaning a new sense 
um, which could be useful for the future. That is the whole purpose. So when he says in the very beginning, for example, when he speaks about the Gita, he says, well, we have to take that aspect from the Gita, which is yet humanity needs for the future. And of course, he says there is much in the Gita that is always useful for the future. So he speaks about two kinds of things in the past, scriptures, things which are temporal and things which are eternal. So in Indian thought, we see that, you know, there are uh, much that is eternal. But a classic example of temporal and eternal would be in the Vedic uh, ritual of sacrifice. So we see that Vedic rishis which light up a fire and they would, you know, uh, throw the samidha and through that they would seek rain, they would seek a change of season, they would make the earth fertile. Now this is, um, this has its validity and it probably still has its validity and had its validity in those days. Uh, it was another kind of technology if you may say so. But today the more important aspect of the Veda is not that karm can't but the jnana can't. The aspect of the Vedas which which is eternal, the, the one self, the one self expressing himself in many forms. So this is how we see in, in the Gita itself very beautifully Sri Krishna draws the distinction between Vedvad and the true Vedic knowledge the Vedantic truths. So, we see that there are temporal aspects of a scripture which are uh, not, uh, you know, which can be left aside. They were useful at a given point of time. One classic example with regard to Shurabindu, when he speaks about the past, particularly in foundations of Indian culture and the synthesis of yoga and the Gita, he speaks about, about the Chaturvanya, the fourfold order of society, which unfortunately is uh, mistaken or deliberately, I would say, uh, you know, people speak about it as uh, caste system in India. But uh, to start with, there was it was not jati but varna. It was not based on birth but temperament. So this was a fourfold order based on um, you know the four layers through which humanity advances from where it is to where it can go. So in its early stages of evolution, humanity is more centered around the physical. So when it is centered around the physical, that is its world. And uh, it's, it's uh, normally, you know, the everyday experiences that come through the senses, uh, that is its life. Uh, then the next layer comes where it wants to go beyond this immediate physical context, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, physical touches, physical sights, physical hearing. Uh, physical understanding of things into a larger um, it it sails through an ocean towards larger and larger shores it wants it ent engages into a larger interchange with the world a world which it does not yet see but it explores as an adventurer as a mariner as you know uh, the modern businessman who goes takes his goods beyond the uh, you know, the typical example is in, in villages, there used to be the Mela, where they were the tribals who would make their little nice handmade things, uh, pottery and all, they would come and sell it. This was their limit. But later on, the same thing expanded into such beautiful piece of, uh, you know, uh, pottery and different things uh, made by artisans, but carried across the world. So this was the second layer of humanity. And the third layer of humanity, which had the impulse towards truth and justice and right, um, towards strength and power, and a fourth layer which was towards knowledge and wisdom. And yes, once all these layers, human beings had crossed, they could look up towards the beyond, towards something which goes off beyond all the four varnas. So, those who took to spiritual life had none of these varnas. It was said that sadhu ki, sant ki koi jat nahi hoti. Now, you know, when in the Indian context, this was very 
रेलिवेंट बिकॉज इंडियन थॉट सनातन धर्मा बिलीव्स इन रीबर्थ एंड द होल आइडिया ऑफ रीबर्थ इज एन इवोल्यूशनरी प्रोसेस बट वेन वी लुकेट इट फ्रॉम द वेस्टर्न लेंस विच डजेंट बिलीव इन रीबर्थ इट बिलीव्स ओनली इन वन पर्टिकुलर लाइफ सो इट बिकम्स ऑल मीनिंगलेस इट अपियर्स एज इफ यू नो दे इज अ डिफरेंशिएशन विच इज बींग क्रिएटेड सो शोरबिंदो वी सी ब्रिंग्स आउट दिस एंड ही ऑल्सो सेज दैट वेल इट हैज बीन ब्रोकन एंड राइटली सो बिकॉज इंस्टेड ऑफ टेम्परामेंट ओवर ए पीरियड ऑफ टाइम इट बिकेम अ क्वेश्चन ऑफ बर्थ इट लॉस्ट इट्स रियल सेंस एंड इवन दो इवन विद रिगार्ड टू बर्थ इन द बिगनिंग बिकॉज इंडियंस अंडरस्टूड वॉट हेरिडिटी रियली मीन्स एंड लेटर ऑन इट वॉज लॉस्ट एंड देयर फोर यू नो इट हैड टू बी ब्रोकन ए साइड एंड समथिंग ग्रेटर हैड टू कम फॉर द फ्यूचर एंड पर एप्स इट इज टू टिपिफाई दिस दैट द ओल्ड सिस्टम इज ब्रोकन यू सी वेरी इंटरेस्टिंग इन द गीता इट इज श्री कृष्णा हु establishes this he says that uh, i am the one who has established this chaturvan now very interesting that shurbindo is born in a family which actually in a sense doesn't really believe in uh, all these things and he himself if you look at the hierarchy of things he doesn't belong to any higher caste higher varna but he has come to typify that all these things have been broken aside and yet he releases that truth because those truths remain humanity moves through different layers doesn't matter what we call them or we don't give it any term but it is going to be uh, moved towards that similarly we see shobindo bringing out the truths of the ramayana and the mahabharata and you know how beautifully when he speaks about rama the you know there are letters of dilip kumar roy where he says uh, well how can we really call rama an avatar and he raises his injunctions based on you know uh, michael madhusudan dats uh, Uh, questions and then he reveals that we have to see the rama uh, in the context of the setting and the time as has been given by valmiki and in its totality you can't pick up isolated incidents and you know start arguing about rama's life and then beautifully uh, there is a very beautiful letter um, written to dilip kumar roy on what rama represents and how he is the avatar and he says i see no one else who would fit in except rama then when he speaks about krishna he gives us a new meaning of what we today call as the krishnila where we read and you know the the gopis for instance uh, vastra haran so beautifully says that when god came and plucked my robe of uh, vice i let it go but when he came to pluck my robe of virtue i hesitated so this is how he he speaks even about you know how those who are uh, mystics they will understand the meaning in a different way and those who are living in the gross passions they would understand it in a very different way so we see that the ramayana the mahabharata the gita now the gita we will see that is strewn with words like uh, integrals uh, even he would use the word about supermind now in the gita itself directly we don't see a reference but shurbindo brings out in fact before um, shurbindo's um, you know what he has revealed about the gita the gita was generally regarded as a shastra of karma yoga of course there is in it the integral yoga but most people would regard it as a gospel of action and yes it is a gospel of action but the beauty is this action is intertwined with bhakti intertwined with jnana it's not just a gospel of works it's 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 the triple path as shrivindo says so when he speaks about the gita he speaks about those moments also when shri krishna almost opens the doors to the supermind then knowing that humanity is not ready he shuts it back so we see again he brings out that in the gita which we, which will which is going to yet liberate humanity 
Mother, in fact, spoke about it that with the new interpretation given by Shurabindo, the action of Gita has become manifold and it is going to yet liberate humanity uh, in times to come. Similarly, uh, you know, with regard to the Vedas, so Vedas were one of the books in which humanity started re-engaging. I was hearing someone say that, you know, the human, the first humanity, you know, it was the Western context in which people started getting interested in the Veda, particularly quoting Max Muller. I want to say that it was, it's not really true. The Vedas have always engaged uh, people in the Indian setting. The great Shankaracharya, Madhavacharya, Ramanuj, all of them engaged with the Veda. And then we see Dhyanand Saraswati. So, Max Muller, in the Western context, yes, we see that one of the first persons who started engaging with the Vedas is Max Muller. But it's not true that that's how the revival started. But for some reason or the other, we see people started engaging with the Veda. But invariably, the interpretations were either one-sided, the Karmakand was completely taken off, you know, the stress on the Jnana Kand or the Vedanta, which created a one-sided understanding of the Veda, the Vedanta eventually leading to another worldliness because, you know, it speaks so much about meditation and Jnana. Uh, so also we see that there is that element of Bhakti which is there as a seed. Uh, the Samved is all about that, but that goes missing in the subsequent interpretations. And then, of course, there is a problem of words because the Vedic mystics wrote uh, every, you know, their speech always had at least two layers of meaning. And the first was, which was very much with the images of all the, um, all that they saw, all that they felt, all that they understood of cows and horses and, uh, you know, uh, carts, the, the Ravaka and the cart story, and fruits and flowers and this these are the images they used of rivers or mountains because these were the images in which they lived and through these images they conveyed a profound truth. Why they chose to conceal it? Because they re- believed uh, in Adhikar Bhed that these profound truths should not be given to anyone and everyone. And one can understand why because knowledge is a tremendous power. They understood the power of knowledge. Knowledge is empowerment. You know, and if these things fall into the wrong hands, they can be very dangerous. So we have stories in the Puranas where there are people who have actually, there is an Asura who actually swallows the Veda, hides it under water. So all this we begin to understand when we read what Shurabindu has spoken about it. And when Shurabindu interprets the secret of the Vedas, it is something which opens a new door of understanding. At least that was my feeling, having read the Vedas, uh, you know, as a child growing up in a typically religious atmosphere and <laughs> just went through it. it made honestly made no sense it was a good interpretation but you know it made no sense at all uh, then Swami Dhyanand Saraswati again uh, made little bit sense but not what one is really looking for that why is it being regarded as such a wonderful and high scripture the Upanishads again um, Gandhiji's and uh, Radha Krishnan's uh, Upanishadic uh, translations and commentaries, but they didn't make sense. You know, you're looking for something which is missing. But the moment one of the first books that came across in my hands was Secret of the Vedas along with the synthesis. And I still remember just reading the first few pages and I had such a aha experience that here is it. This is what one is looking for. So these are wonderful works where Shurabindo brings out the past. This one kind of action which he engaged in where he took up the past but gave it a totally new understanding and a new direction for the future. But when we use the word new, we must understand that Shurabindo was not doing it 
on the basis of just a interpretation he was very much aware that there are words and sounds and he was completely in sync with the philology of those times and um, as we know that when shubhendra came to um, pondicherry shri krishna gave him a new nirukta so this was what changed the whole thing etymology of words the grammar which was used in ancient times which was lost and based on that and his own experiences so he could reinterpret the veda in a, in a new light completely you know there is a line in savitri an archivist of the symbols of the beyond so when he started revealing then one understood even today we see many uh, people when they speak about the vedas and they speak about the holy cow Uh, they still take cow to be the physical animal which is okay which is good nothing wrong with that cow is a wonderful animal and i believe that no animal should be killed <laughs> animals are such beautiful they trust us actually they trust us so blindly almost like little children and to make them meat to kill them and you know use it for pleasure it's not something very beautiful not only cow and de- definitely all higher mammals um, animals certainly carry in them some kind of a consciousness which Uh, where they look up to us as uh, you know beings like gods they need to evolve along our lines and then to suddenly break their trust and to just take it for the sake of palate is certainly not a good thing but having said that the cow the holy cow in the vedas you know just imagine the cow of plenty uh, aditi mother aditi she is described as a cow kamdenu in the in the heavens of indra and of course we know that um, in with versus rishi where she can bring out of her feet by simply moving her feet she can bring out armies which can defeat an entire army of vishwamitra surely they are not speaking of a physical cow and shobindra reveals to us how from the root go which is all about light so go gupt gopal um, you know all of them gop gopi all of these words refer to the root go which means light and from there we also have the word guru so guru also can be seen in this way go is light so you know go was light and the rishis were aspiring for the light of plenty for the increase of light so when we read shirvindo's interpretation of the vedas now it's a whole vast subject we discover not just the vedas i, I must say but why it is contextual as i said this discovery has to be contextual we discover the vedas and we understand ourselves that's what the vedic knowledge is meant to give us it's not meant to give us what people were doing in ancient times and how they were you know bringing cows and offspring so when we read about offsprings the rishis are asking it was so evident to me when i read shirvindo's interpretation that the offspring are the new energies of the new consciousness which are born in us as a result of engaging in the vedic yoga so the more we ascend to higher levels of consciousness there are new new energies which come in and that's what we see is typified in the story of savitri and satyavan where she asks for offsprings which come as a result of the joining of savitri and satyavan and these offspring wherever sometime we read about 60000 offsprings of king sagar which seems an impossibility and obviously 60000 offsprings who have lost their way and again they take the cow or the horse and the tight in patal are evidently offsprings such plenty of offsprings are generally those which belong to the subconscious regions these energies which have sprung up so a whole new understanding though shubhendra touches upon purana several places not all the legends but a whole new understanding begins to emerge for instance in bande matram then he touches on the purana as he speaks about the story of daksh prajapati so in that story he says that you know 
the goat's head is fixed behind now you know we all have read the story but you know as to put it in context when we speak about new creation now what do we really mean of course there is a certain uh, and we speak about uh, resurgence of the past what really do we mean is it the form or the spirit so repeatedly shubindu speaks about that it is the spirit that has to be brought out and it will receive new forms because new forms are needed for the new manifestation the spirit is not something static it evolves so we see you know vedic literature over a period of time though they are the classical four vedas in the sanskrit but there are also others and others which have come and shubindu based on pure philology for instance when he speaks about vyasa mahabharata how beautifully he says what could be added and what is not added based on the way the uh, shlokas run so when he speaks about them he is not just speaking as an interpreter interpreter is interpreting a body of words based on you know present day understanding based on present day knowledge of the grammar but when shurvindu is interpreting it he is completely basing it on philology exactly as it is so we see many interpretations of the for instance isha upanishad and the classic example is where shurvindu speaks about shankaracharya where it, he, they, there have been even tweaking of verses to give it a spin which would uh, give us the idea of otherworldliness so this is a very important work which we need to engage in otherwise all the time we hear from uh, so called uh, you know authorities which given interpretation which is otherworldly and in all this bringing out uh, whether it be ramayana the mahabharata the puranas the vedas and of course the upanishad uh, shubindu reveals to us that Uh, indian thought indian way of life was never otherworldly in fact if you read it you feel there is it never was it allowed for a otherworldliness in those rare individual who wanted to cut off from all this uh, you know worldly engagements who wanted to take up sanyas in the sense of physical but that was not the predominant strain but if you read i'll give another example kena upanishad when you read the uh, typical commentary it gives a feeling that this is not the world that you know you need to really be in the real world is elsewhere but when shubindu interprets it reveals it purely on the same meaning he says no there is a deeper sense behind it and there is this ordinary world there is this greater world of the gods and there is the still greater world which is yet to manifest the unmanifest who comes as eternal and even the gods don't know him so there are new possibilities see this story of the gods who don't know the eternal is something very interesting so these gods are have come but you know they have won a victory in man which means they have created an idealized humanity and then when you understand the entire overmind creation which the mother had brought and then she demolished one can understand in the light of kena upanishad the gods had won they had created an idealized humanity with ideal impulses ideal thought ideal feelings and yet that victory is not enough they would rest content and there would be a decline so the eternal comes to reveal to them that there are still greater things hiding in the unmanifest so they must be humble enough to recognize that this victory is not the last and final victory so and then you know even this question about how does such a person uh, how is such a person of help to society so shubindu brings out that last bit in the kena upanishad where he says you know he becomes like a flower to which bees are attracted and then he speaks about you know the honey he becomes full of rasa 
and such a person draws many others very naturally. He doesn't have to do anything simply because he is full of that delight uh, and ecstasy of the divine. Now, when we re understand, like at least that was the, uh, my experience, that then a whole new world opened. Before that, when I had read the Cain Upanishad, it, it seemed, well, it is otherworldly. <laughs> Ultimately, it is saying this world, these senses, uh, you know, we are living in a world which is uh, so limited, so ignorant. And there is something else higher towards which we must aspire, especially those lines where it says, Yan mansana manute yenahur manomatang tadeva brahmantam vidhi nedam yadidam upasati. But then it became very clear that, well, these are the steps and stages of our ascension and there are still beautiful things which are to come, which are hinted in the Kena Upanishad, more revealed in the Isha Upanishad and completely brought to the forefront by Shravindo's interpretation of all these works and, of course, his, his other works. So, this is how he speaks about the uh, Upanishad. Then he speaks about Indian culture, you know, those who... Um, who don't, uh, you know, who have all kinds of misgivings about Indian culture. There are two writings. One is the Bangla writings and the second is foundations of Indian culture. So in foundations of Indian culture, which started as a rejoinder to a critic, but actually goes much farther to reveal, uh, you know, when you read through Shurabindo's eyes, you know, he is lending us his eyes. So often when I look at Shurabindo's works, I really feel that look uh, toward the end of, you know, what we can call as the earthly uh, embodiment, we see that Shubhinda had almost lost his eyes. When I read this, uh, I was deeply touched that here is someone who gave us sight and to give us sight, he lost his eyes, uh, almost lost his eyes. But he would uh, recognize people by the contact of consciousness. That's what Amal Kiran writes, that you know how he would recognize when last Darshan Amal Kiran came and Shubhinda turns to the mother and says, speaks about Amal Kiran because purely by contact of consciousness, the sight behind the sight he could recognize. But here is somebody who wrote extensively and lost his sight to give us new sight and a true sight. And the least we can do as a homage, as an expression of gratitude in the year that is going to come, is to read Shurabindo because, you know, it contains his new sight. It is his eyes. So often when we uh, uh, read Shurabindo's works uh, we can understand that Shurabindo is lending us not just his word there is the word which new creates us see the power of the word to create a new so they are spandan they are vibrations and when we read his words it creates us a new and states of consciousness which are not accessible to us. But it is also Shurabindo's ears and eyes that he is lending to us. You know, the Vedic Rishis had truth audition and truth vision. And that he is lending to us. So he is literally engaging in a kind of sacrifice where his vision, where his ears, hearing, all this inspiration and everything, he is uh, uh, giving us uh, uh, as a means towards you know, so that we can see with his eyes, we can hear with his ears. Uh, it's so beautiful. I, I always feel when Mother, uh, you know, sees Shurabindo and how beautifully she uh, says that it matters not that there are thousands of beings plunged in ignorance. He whom I saw yesterday is here on earth. So what is Mother doing? It is not just a prayer. She knows we are blind. So she is lending her eyes to us who are blind. So that we can see the world with her eyes. So when we read the foundations of Indian culture, we uh, the image of India that comes before us. Otherwise, before that, there is all this uh, you know talk about that. No, no, 
Indian culture was all otherworldly and they are just showing fantastic things. Pushpak Viman and you know, all this uh, arrows, this weaponry, all this, whether it existed or not. Now, Shubhendu, without touching that aspect, whether Pushpak Viman existed or not is not the issue. But there was such a developed civilization and he bases it not just on... Uh, you know, uh, an emotional sentiment. He bases it on, you know, actual temple constructions, bases it on music of ancient times, poetry of ancient times, particularly he brings in also Kalidas along with Vyas and Valmiki. So on all that available literature, he bases and reveals to us what truly is the greatness of India. And it's so important because, see, we don't hang in a vacuum. One of the big problems that has happened today is that our Indian youth are completely disconnected with the past. Why? Because of the uh, left liberal thought and the, you know, typical thought which has streamed in from the Western world that, well, uh, and the, of course the communist world that all these are just imaginations uh, there was never any Hanuman the monkeys don't speak and many many such things which have streamed in um, there was a whole serial based on Ramayana um, it was based on you know Nehru's book Discovery of India um, not just Ramayana it was Discovery of India Bharatek Khoj but it is completely different leanings altogether you could see that it is not showing India it is rather um, demolishing India in a different way altogether. So, um, in times as these, when we see all kinds of forces are working, and as as we know that it is the 75th year of also also of India's independence, Azadi ka Amrit Mahotsav, the least we can do is engage with this beautiful book. It's not a difficult book to read. It doesn't have so many pages, and I mean it has enough to engage us for a lifetime. But this is a wonderful book to just read together because then we understand what really India is because that's the foundation on which we have to build. It gives us a new understanding of Sanatan Dharma. Sanatan Dharma was not about ritual. Sanatan Dharma was not about otherworldliness. It allowed many things. But it is something much vaster, much more powerful, much more comprehensive. Much It was engaging with light. You know, when you read Sri he says that Indians had stupendous vitality. Not, you know, that's why they were creators. They created so much and so many things. And to remind ourselves of that is important. You know, we have that story of in, in Ramayana where Hanuman is sitting on the seashore and he says, how can I cross the sea? I am just an ordinary monkey. And that's when Jambant, you know, uh, reminds him that you are not an ordinary monkey. You are Rama's monkey. And, you know, you have done such beautiful feats in the past and you can do even greater in the future. So the reason why we should remember and remind ourselves is so that our baseline is good. Then again, we see that another word which we find very often, Arya, Arya worth. This is how, and there was at one point of time, even a newspaper by the name Aryavarth. So it was about that land of India as it existed in um, ancient times. And what was the Aryan ideal? So, of course, we know that his writings themselves, the name of the journal was Arya. And he, naturally, people questioned that, are you trying to take us to an archaic past? And are you being racist? And, you know, Aryan, Dravidian, all these uh, theories that come. So, Shubindo was the, um, uh, you know, one of the first ones. Of course, Swami Vivekananda also debunked the Aryan theory. Aryan invasion theory. Not the Aryan theory, Aryan invasion theory. Uh, there were others whose voices were suppressed. But Swami Vivekananda very powerfully debunked. But Swami Vivekananda did not write a whole, uh, you know, um, reasons why he is debunking it. Shubindo debunked the theory on philology 
on uh, anthropology on his own contact with his you know when he came down south with the counterparts his own understanding you see he went to the details of analyzing the roots of tamil and sanskrit and latin and showed us the commonalities in fact he says latin is like a bridge between tamil and um sanskrit there are so many similarities one can actually see how that little bit of change over takes place so his work on the on debunking the aryan invasion is something which i don't think there have been many now fortunately we have the archaeological evidence of the lost river saraswati and uh, several books have been written but still i feel that what shrivindra has written debunking the aryan invasion theory based on his study of philology is something which is which is uh, unparalleled and unmatched so uh, you know he was by this way he was also trying to bring india once again become a unifying force for india because one of the problems for india even today is this divisive politics you know everywhere we try to divide based on you know various ways but but uh, shubindra reveals that these kind of so called what we call as divisions were not divisions they were richness of indian culture and thought which allowed variety but yet all this variety was based on one common uh, seed truth that is sanatan dharma and that's why you see the reason why this uh, south north divide and all this came up i'm not going to name the person because that belongs to the realm of politics somebody who said well south of india is a very different country altogether because they couldn't understand culture that person couldn't understand culture and religion whereas actually if you see that north and south east and west you can understand only on the basis of religion and culture you may have different tongues and different thing although tongue also as i said sanskrit and tamil and you see from north to south from kashmir to kanyakumari it's shiva you see from west to east you see it's krishna dwarka and manipur it's something very strange that it is culture which has connected india it's religion which has connected india and if you remove that force you will see nothing but you know uh, united states of india always striving for disunity so all this is a work which is so important where many things from the past he took out and released uh, revealed to them in a new light that light shrivindra had brought uh, with which he saw them was not a light of the mind he was not interpreting it based on reason and based on his philological understanding alone but there was a greater light so very often when we read these things from shrivindra we see a whole new india emerged on the world scene a strong india a powerful india an india which once in her uh, pristine glory uh, rightfully commanded the whole world but always it commanded not for him itself but for the greater good of the world there is something very beautiful that should be in the mention with which we can probably you know uh, pause and if there are any questions over the next 10 minutes we can take up because today we are just touching upon the past aspect you know shubindu says when he gives that uttar para speech i think this is a speech which uh, every indian should read uh, i'm not saying with the idea of pro- proselytizing anyone there is nothing like that in this yoga but everybody should read this speech because this is a speech which reveals to us what really is meant by the rise of india so while india should advance technologically scientifically industrially in everything shubindra was very much progressive in every area but its base is sanatan dharma 
it is the guru of the world its key is spirituality spirituality is the master key of the indian mind so there are few things which indian indian mind or indian thought cannot do away with and one of them is dharma the other is adhyatma adhyatma literally means spirituality means ascension of consciousness adhyatma so yagya the understanding of life is a yagya not an outer yagya but that life belongs to all this sense is innate inbuilt in indian thought and indian culture and indian practice so dharma yagya adhyatma yoga all these we need to revisit in shurbindo's light you know the synthesis of yoga he very beautifully you know he says that this world as we see today presents a cauldron of media media is the greek you know sorceress now i must say in the passing before i touch upon this that when he is digging out india's past he is also bringing out the past of other civilizations you know we are suddenly enter into celtic and you know the druids the world of the druids the the slavs the all of them suddenly appear before our eyes uh greeks particularly you know you suddenly see egyptian um you you know he brings them all alive they they are no more just dead past but as if they continue to exist in one form or the other and they are yet determining the future of mankind you know if we understand what shubhendra spoken about the past civilizations we'll much better understand the present including the conflicts that are going on in the world you know for instance why akhand bharat because they have always been one you can't divide what is one you try doing it they will join together so this is how you know he brings out all these things and there in synthesis he says the world presents itself as a cauldron of media where all that was there in the past which was yet useful is being shredded into pieces and cast into the uh, vessel for what a, a nice making a nice kichdi so of course we are good at making khichdi but there are two kinds of khichdi one is where we casually just pick up everything and put it other is that even in khichdi there is an art even you know so now we talk about wideness but there are two types of wideness the wideness of the sea and the wideness of the uh, sky sea has depth in it but it stops at a point of time this depth goes toward darker and darker layers it has a rich life but the vastness of the sky is something very different it holds it is also living and teeming teeming with countless luminous planets who knows how many uh, types of life exist on that its vastness is endless its depth is beyond measure so you know when he he speaks about that he says among these things from the past indian yoga is one of those things see he wrote this in 1916 14 in fact yeah synthesis of yoga very first page that uh, indian yoga is one of them which still will be brought out into the forefront for the good of the humanity but then he says something very remarkable but first it must rediscover itself it 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 must step out of the ascetic caves and rediscover itself and i think that it's uh, the rediscovery began when in 2014 or 15 i am forgetting which year that you know there is an international yoga day but yet still as indians we should not use the word yoga for asanas yoga is something much more profound just like dharma is not religion we should stop looking at india through the eyes which uh, we have received from a, another 
civilization and culture uh, which is okay everybody is a right to look at things like that but india should be looked from the eyes of india and what better eyes of india than of shirobindo so this is about the past maybe tomorrow when we meet we, i'll speak about shubindo's work with the present as as a vibhuti shri krishna speaks about being a vibhuti and an avatar and on 15 we'll speak about the avataric aspect of shubindo namaste <laughs>